Hello, podcasters. Welcome back to Mr. Stroud's History Class. I'm going to begin, as I have been beginning for some time, with a couple of shout-outs. Well-deserved shout-outs, as are every shout-out I've done. And this first shout-out goes to none other than my favorite son-in-law. Yes, my favorite son-in-law, Gerard Quinlan. Every time I tell him he's my favorite son-in-law, gave him a t-shirt that simply says, Favorite Son-in-Law. He says with an English accent, Mr. Stroud, I'm your only son-in-law. But I want GQ to know right here and now, had I more than one son-in-law, he would still be my favorite son-in-law. He came to America, crossed the pond, attended the University of North Texas, got a degree as an accountant and is an expert in taxation, and while he was at North Texas, he was the captain of the Mean Green tennis team, which won games such as if it was a green machine. And when Gerard married my daughter, it showed how intelligent he was, and he is the father of three sons who I lovingly know as the Musketeers. And they are Owen, Liam, and Gavin. And when my favorite son-in-law gave me a t-shirt with the photograph of Churchill, who looks a lot like a bulldog, an English bulldog, of course, and like every baby that's ever been born, and have some of Churchill's quotes, I was going to read a few, but I cannot read upside down. Fortunately, he gave me a book, Churchill in Quotes. And I will read you one that I selected that goes perfectly with the podcast tonight. But when my favorite son-in-law said, Mr. Stroud, there is a podcaster in your class that deserves a shout-out. And I said, say no more. Send me some information and the shout-out will come right now. And that is to none other than Bill Rowe, R-O-W-E, who lives near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, how can I say that, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? He, Bill, is into studying the American Revolution, as I am. And I know, living near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is well aware of Fort Pitt, originally Fort Duquesne, the battle on the, forgive my mispronunciation, the Monongahela, for none other than my favorite American, George Washington, fought braver than any man you would ever read about. He attended Robert Morris University and has a master's degree in taxation. And I welcome Bill to Mr. Stroud's history class, and I hope you can hear the applause. I believe it's a standing ovation for both of them. Yes, we are proud that you two are members. And Gerard, my favorite son-in-law, has been a member of the history class since the very beginning. Now, the quote that I have selected for tonight's podcast, Mr. Churchill, is one that I would bet that you are all familiar with. So I am going to read it, and if you are not familiar, and it's the only time you've ever heard this quote, please raise your hand, and I will count them quickly, and I will get back and tell you how many. Here is the quote. Listen carefully. See if you've ever heard this before. 
It was right after he was elected prime minister in 1940, and he simply said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Podcasters. That is a perfect quote for this podcast today. 1864. I know many of you love mathematics. I know you do. I know that you are podcasters and you love podcast participation. So I'm going to give you a math problem. Now you do have smartphones. I hope you are smarter than that phone. I'm not. You have calculators. You have pencils. You got paper. And you all have brains. Do this simple math. In four years of the Civil War, they keep going up on how many are going to die. I'm going with the top. I'm going with the top that have seen the most recent one. 800,000. I'm going to say that one more time. 800,000 are going to die from 1861 to 1865. 1864, we are getting about three years into that bloody war. So doing simple mathematics, by 1864, if approximately 200,000 are dying every year, how many have died on New Year's Day, 1864? Why don't we just go with 600,000? 600,000. And there's no end to the war in sight. I bet you there is no one living in the North or in the South in a state that has troops in that war that does not have a relative or a friend that has been killed. Now, one of the things I enjoy doing, and that is true, I enjoy doing this, is giving you homework assignments that would expand your knowledge of the period that we are discussing. Music. Songs. So, either right now, stop the podcast and come back, or promise me that you would do it when this podcast is over. A couple of songs that were sang during the Civil War expressing the sadness one sang North and South. Go to Tennessee Ernie Ford on YouTube. The Vacant Chair. The Vacant Chair. They would sang that in the North and in the South. Another thing. If you've listened to these Civil War podcasts, you know there is something that I like really about these swords. Now, before I tell you this, I want you to take a piece of paper, unless you're driving, you're driving, you keep both hands on the road. If you can, I want you to take a piece of paper and a pencil. I'm going to tell you again, those who know better than I say that taking notes in pencil helps you remember better than doing them in pen, ink. I do not know why, but that's what they say. And I want to remind you of Valerie's line. 
If you do not know Valerie's line, Valerie is an intelligent young lady. I see occasionally over the cafe that I attend, sometimes in Longview, Texas. And I asked her once, I said, Valerie, I had gotten a couple of good comments about the podcast. How many can I show you where I'm just telling you facts and I'm not into the bragging? And she thought a moment and she said, okay, one or two, that's fine. But three or more, you've crossed the line into the bragging. So from time to time, I'm going to have you draw Valerie's line. And on one side of that line, every time I say something that's favorable to me, you put a one, then you put a two. If I say a third one, then you move it over to the bragging line, okay? That's how it works. So I want you to have attention paid to Valerie's line. And I'm going to tell you something, and I'm pretty darn sure I am correct. In fact, I know I am. Get ready to mark that one down there. There's not another teacher, not another podcaster, that's going to tell you the importance of the sword. You hear it only at Mr. Stroud's history class. And you know, I'm going to give you one to look at. Here's a homework assignment. I want you to go to the wide world web. I wish we could come. I'm going to come up with something besides Google. Internet search. And you type in the horse soldier Gettysburg. So if you just put the horse soldier, it would take you to the movies. It's going to take you to a little souvenir shop in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And podcasters, it's got all types of Civil War stuff. You're going to see a little search place up there. And I want you to type in First Massachusetts. And you push search. It's going to take you to a little page, and I want you to stroll down until you see a, a sword. It belonged to Captain Marcus A. Moore. Click on that. Look at it. If this were a classroom, I would tell you this. I'm going to have a couple of questions about that sword to see if you actually looked at it. And one of the questions I will ask you is where does his name appear? Secondly, what college did he graduate from? He was a doctor. Dr. Smith, he was a doctor. And after looking at the sword, reading the description, he then tells you a brief history of Captain Moore. And the question I would ask, the last one about that, is what happened to him. Now, I'm having to look at that sword because approximately half of those people that died in that war are going to die because of some type of disease or sickness. And you look at that sword. Okay, that's your homework assignment. Six hundred thousand. And no end to the war in sight. 
But podcasters, I will tell you again and again and again, learning and reading are ING words. And you're going to hear over and over and over and over how I learn from reading. And what I'm going to tell you now, I only read in one book. And it was astounding. And that book was Hymns of the Republic. Written by the same author that wrote the history of the Comanche that I told you about in the Comanche podcast. Empire of the Southern Moon. Six hundred thousand died and no end in sight. And this was something. In Washington, D.C., everyone was dancing. Dancing. They danced at the Willard Hotel. They danced at the Reynolds Hotel. They threw parties. One of the parties they threw was the enlisted men's ball, raising money for enlisted men to help them out. Sanitary fairs to raise money to help the wounded and the sick. And one, I would love to attend at this one, the Monster Ball. The Monster Ball. Now I'm going to tell you something. I want to tell you right now. I played football in high school at Henderson High School. And one day I was driving into the field house because we had a game that night in Henderson. And there was a radio station we all listened to in Henderson. It was a little red barn on the hill. And at 4 p.m., they would take dedications. You could call in and dedicate a song to your girlfriend or your boyfriend, and it could be secret anonymous, whatever. And I want to tell you something, podcasters. I only got one song dedicated to me, and it was anonymous. I still do not know who did it. Now, before I tell you the name of that song, I'm going to tell you that I got Lyman of the Week. In all East Texas, we all joke because I got it after probably the worst game I ever played. I started both ways, by the way. I was an offensive-defensive tackle. The name of that song dedicated to me on the way to the fieldhouse for that game last night. Do this on YouTube and listen to it. You ready? The Monster Mash. The Monster Mash. I took that as a compliment, and I still do. The Monster Ball. They danced, they danced, they danced. They were optimistic. It was as if they could see sunshine on a rainy day. Somehow, they had a feeling that the end of the beginning had come, or it was going to be the beginning of the end. Somehow, this was going to be the last year, and they danced, and they danced, and they danced. One of the reasons they were optimistic is because someone was coming to town, and that someone was someone that Lincoln had to have. During this war, one general after another, McDowell, McClellan, 
Pope, Hooker, one defeat after another. And after they got defeated, they would retreat back to Washington. And Lincoln was trying to find a general that could win battles. Now, I've told you this when I did Grant's name change. Every now and then a student would say, Mr. Stroud, where's Grant? Where's Grant? Remember? Find out what brand of whiskey Grant drinks, and I'll send it to my other generals. He wins battles. But that was the problem. His reputation was a drunkard. And I hate to tell you this, but even in war, there's this thing called politics. And that's what was keeping Lincoln from appointing him to a higher command. But after Lincoln saw what Grant did at Chattanooga, he could care less whether he drank or not. At one time, when he was trying to find a general, a congressman visiting Mr. Lincoln in the White House said, Mr. President, get somebody, get somebody, get somebody. And Lincoln, I'm telling you again, chapters and chatter, need to get a book on Lincoln quotes. Lincoln said, somebody might do for you, but I've got to have that somebody. And after Chattanooga, that somebody was Grant. I'm going to remind you, Grant had the tenacity of a bulldog named Tater Tot. He got knocked down at Shiloh the first day. He got up, and he won the battle. At Vicksburg, like a bulldog named Tater Tot, he kept attacking and attacking and attacking and attacking. The forlorn hope, he kept attacking. And every time he got knocked down, he got back up and came at you again. It was like a cat that accidentally misjudged how high the table was, and he fell down. But when he landed, he landed on all four feet, and it looked around like he had it planned all the time. And he did it again. The tenacity of a bulldog. Even one named Tater Tot. And they danced and they danced and they danced as if they could see sunshine on a stormy day. Sunshine on a rainy day. Grant was coming to town. At that time, he was the most popular man in the North. He was different. When McClellan came to town, after he was defeated in the Seven Days Battles. He had 25 wagons, six feet long, drawn by four horses, all picked to be matched in color, carrying the baggage. When Grant showed up at the train station, he had one little suitcase, which was called a carpet bag, because it was made out of the same material that you made carpet out of. His son, Fred, was with him. Nobody, due to some type of error, had been there to show him where to go to greet him. 
So he simply went over to headquarters and Halleck was gone and he finally just gave up and he went to the hotel that they had told him where they had reserved a room for him. He was coming to town. A congressman from Galena, his hometown, had sponsored him from the very beginning, had introduced a joint resolution to strike a gold medal for Grant to honor his victory at Vicksburg. And you can look it up. You can, you can go to the wide world web, Google, and search Grant's gold medal, and you can see it. It's beautiful. It was one pound of gold. When Grant learned about it, he said he didn't need it. He had enough awards. And as you know from these podcasts, he already got a half a ton of swords. But they gave it to him anyway. Elihu Washburn also suggested that Grant be elevated in rank to lieutenant general. And what he said is Grant is the legitimate successor to Washington. And Bill knows the rank of Lieutenant General was Washington's. And here we go with the ING word, the reading. Podcasters. In one book I read, Washington was the only Lieutenant General until Grant. Another book I read, Grant and Winfield Scott were only lieutenant generals until Grant. Then I read in another book that Winfield Scott was not a legitimate lieutenant general. It was an honorary title. And then I read in another book that Washington's was an honorary title and Winfield Scott's was an honorary title. And the first real Honest to goodness, Lieutenant General was Grant. So what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to leave it to you. You decide which one you want. Whichever one you go with, you have back to pack, back it up. Whether he was the first, the second, or the third, Lincoln signed that warrant commission in February of 1864. Leap year day, February 29th, he becomes Lieutenant General and commands all of the Union armies. And another thing I want you to do, I've mentioned this once before, but I want to make sure you do it. I want you to listen to about three minutes of a book, the third biography of Grant I listened to. And I want you to listen to this, and I want you to see whether you agree with me or not how joyful it is to ride the highways and byways of East Texas and my Ford Ranger pick up truck listening to these history books. I want you to go to Amazon.com books, and then type in American Ulysses, and go to that, and then over there under the book, you will see that little dot, and listen, 
and you punch that and you listen to about three minutes. I'm not going to tell you what you listen to. You listen to about three minutes. For me, a good history book, audio, the narrative, and the reader. This is one of the best. But you do that and you're going to see and you're going to hear what it was like when General Grant showed up. He's given command of the army, all the armies, and what he's going to do, he's going to have his friend Sherman, remember the Vicksburg podcast and the trouble I had? I had trouble seeing where that friendship was, the friendship that won the Civil War, and the friendship of Washington and Lafayette. I had trouble. Where was it? You remember in the Vicksburg podcast, the one thing Sherman said, and that's when it hit me, and I'm not going to tell you what hit me. You go back and listen to that Vicksburg podcast, or listen to it if you have not already listened to it, and wow, that did it. It did it. And so Grant's going to tell Sherman, you got command of the Western Army. In that war, the West was east of the Mississippi, Tennessee, Georgia. I'm going to take the Army of the Potomac. That's where his headquarters will be. When the Army of the Potomac heard that General Grant, the Westerner, was coming to take command, well, was that good or bad? Because they knew that Grant had heard bad things about the Army of the Potomac. He also knew that because it was the Army that was nearest Washington, there's a lot of politics in it. One of the people wrote and said that there's some apprehension about General Grant. They don't know whether he's going to be a good commander or a bad commander. But what they're going to have to do is give him a chance. And here was the conclusion of that letter. If he wins, this war is over. But there are also officers that said this. General Grant has not yet met Bobby Lee. Podcasters. Grant has one victory after another, but who were the generals he was fighting? Not one of them, not one of them, not Bragg, not Pimbleton, certainly not Pilla and them at Fort Donaldson, came anywhere near General Lee. And what this is going to be, podcasters, it's going to be the best of the best going against each other. Should I use a football term? The Super Bowl of that war. He has not yet met Bobby Lee. Got another song for you. Another one. You go to YouTube. Go to music, Civil War music. And I want you to listen to this. Richmond is a hard road to travel. Richmond is a hard road to travel. I'll give you another one. Virginia's bloody soil. 
he's not yet met Bobby Lee. General Meade was the commander of the Army of the Potomac. And he wrote his wife, and he also told General Grant through a letter that if General Grant wants to take command of the Army of the Potomac, General Meade would gladly step aside. And he meant it. Now, podcasters, I'm going to ask you a question right here now. Have you ever been talking? And while you're talking, you're thinking about something. And yes, that can be done. It's called chewing gum and walking. I guess that's what... I did it. I did it when I was teaching. I'm telling those students something, and I'm thinking in my mind, do I tell them this? Do I tell them this? Do I not? How long was... Oh, my gosh. When we did the battle of Gettysburg and General Meade, I had something in my mind and I didn't tell you. And I'm going to do it now because I mentioned General George Gordon Meade, the old snapping turtle. And the reason I'm going to do it, I read it in one book after another, after another, after another. And when I read it in a book that was written years ago, I don't remember 1920s, how to win friends and influence people. Podcasters. One of the things I have that I've listened to over and over is not a history book. It is a class taught by a professor. It's on disc. I get them at the great courses. Larry Wilson knows about them. And this is the one, America's Best Sellers. It is a fantastic course. You can take a college course. I forget what university he's in. He is fantastic. And it starts with Pilgrim's Progress. 1635, something like that. And it goes through the books, the bestsellers, up to the year 2000. Only one history book has made the bestseller list. And that is McCullough's biography of John Adams. You hear that, Bill? Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because one of the bestsellers, and this professor said, it is good now, it is needed now, it is useful now as it ever was. How to win friends and influence people. And I listened to that book. And what I'm going to tell you now about General Meade, it was in there. I also have read it in other things. I've been told over and over and over. And so finally, I'm giving in. I'm going to tell you. Here's that rock in that historical pond. And here's that that ripple going out. When Lee was retreating from Gettysburg, and Meade did not pursue him and attack him and end the war, at least it looked like they could, Lincoln was going crazy, trying to get Meade to go after him, and he wouldn't do it. And finally, what? Lincoln had enough, and he sat down and he wrote out a letter, and it was a very angry letter to Meade. 
You know where they found that letter? He never sent it. He never sent it. How do we know that existed after he was killed? They found it in a drawer. And what that has to do with how to influence people and win friends. I also heard it in another book called Lincoln's Emails. That's not the title. It was Lincoln using the telegraph. But the author's daughter said that when he told her about it, she said, oh, like emails. Now, podcasters, I know, I have a feeling every one of you got an electric mail on your computer. And you got Facebook. You got Twitter. You got all that stuff. And I'm going to tell you this right now. When you get angry about something, and you get on there and you type that out, before you send, send, before you punch that, I'm going to tell you what to do. When it says who you're going to send it to, send it to yourself. And you let it sit there for about four or five days and read it. And then you know what you need to do? Just archive it or delete it. I read that in one book after another. Lincoln did it with that angry telegram. He never sent it. Meade was willing to step aside. Now, here is a question for Civil War. Sylvia. Sylvia, I'm sorry. Sylvia, Sylvia, Sylvia. Trivia, trivia, trivia. Who was the commander of the Army of the Potomac? Can you name them all? Yes, you can. Meade will continue to be the commander of the Army of the Potomac. Grant did not take his place, did not remove him. But Grant made his headquarters with the Army of the Potomac. And he's going to go against Bobby Lee. He kept most of those officers. And the campaign is going to be the Overland campaign. General Lee had not met anyone like he's going to meet in the field now. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, one inferior commander after another, I hate to say it, inferior commander after another. He did know of Grant. They were in the Mexican War together, but I'm positive they never saw each other. Longstreet knew Grant. Longstreet was the best corps commander in Robert Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. And Longstreet and Grant were best friends, podcasters. I'm going to tell you something about Grant. And Longstreet could have told you too. When Grant got out of the army because of his drinking and how many books did I ever read in that it said it wasn't that he was drinking but why he was drinking. He missed his wife. 
he was not an alcoholic. And as every book that gets into Grant says, you probably know people like this. He just can't hold his liquor. It didn't take much. And he resigned. Now, two things between the Army days and when he gets command in the Union Army. I'm going to tell you this one again because this one is important. When he didn't have two half dimes to rub together, and that's what they were called before they had nickels, he had inherited a slave, and he freed him. He didn't sell him, he freed him. Another thing, Longstreet. After Grant got out of the army, he was broke. And he ran into Longstreet in St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, Longstreet said, there's my old friend, General Grant. What, General? I'm sorry, promoted. There's my old friend, Sam Grant. Listen to this, podcasters. Grant said, I'm so glad to see you, James. You remember that card game we played? And you beat me? I didn't have the money to pay you? I do now. He reached in his pocket. He pulled out a $50 gold piece. It could very well have been the only money he had. And he gave it to him. That's the kind of man General Grant was. Longstreet knew him. Lee knew of him. And now he's coming after him. This would be called the Overland Campaign. And yes, forgive my mispronunciation of Italian, Frasciento, who did the photographs of Antietam, the photographs of Gettysburg, also did the photographs of the Overland Campaign, simply called, I've got the book right over here, Lee and Grant. You can look it up on Amazon or wherever you find your used books. And you will see photographs. One of them you're going to see you're going to see generals in the Army of the Potomac. They're outside under a tree. And there's Grant bent over, and they're looking at maps. Grant was a map person. He loved maps. And Matthew Brady had gone up to the second floor of a house and taken that photograph. Matthew Brady. And another thing, you go to the horse soldier at Gettysburg, you will see Civil War photographs. You'll see swords and revolvers. One of the recent ones they have on there is a young girl and a dog. I don't know if that dog's name was Tater Top, but it was not an English bulldog. Now, you know they had to be very still in those days because of the long exposure. That's why they didn't smile. Grant is taking over the command of the armies, and he's going to be with the Army of the Potomac, and he saw something the Army of the Potomac soldiers were doing. I'm, going to, I'm just going to say the first time. It may not have been the first time. It's the first time I had a chance to tell you this, okay? Remember a while ago when I talked about Meade and this thing that I wanted to tell you, wanted to tell you, wanted to tell you, wanted to tell you, and I didn't tell you until just now? 
Here's another one. Grant saw those soldiers sewing things onto their uniform. And you know what those were? No, you don't know what those were because I haven't told you what those are. Core badges. C-O-R-P-S. Core badges. Core badges. Go to the internet. Look up Civil War Core badges and you will see them. Red diamonds. Green. Those have been carried over to division patches. Podcasters, I won't tell y'all something. These soldiers, North and South, Union and Confederate, Johnny Reb and Billy Yank, they amaze me. Putting that bright color on their caps and on their shoulders boosted morale. Boosted morale. Now, because, as you know, I was a United States Marine, I knew about the division patches. But when I went into the Corps, they were no longer being worn on the uniforms. Marines stopped wearing division patches after the Korean War. Now, it depends. If they, if you ask the Marine Corps, why do they do that? Well, they're going to tell you, well, well, son, it does not matter what division you're in. A Marine is a Marine. I had a good friend that's a World War II Marine, and when I told him that, he just smiled, and he said, no, no. The reason is they're different shapes. And as you got transferred from one division to another and took it off the uniform, then it had discolored and you couldn't cover it up with the other. That's why they did it. But I will guarantee you this, and if you were in the Marine Corps, you know it. I'm sure they still do it. That division patch was everywhere. It was on the foot lockers. It was in the mess hall. It was on all the 3rd Marine Division gear when I was in the 3rd Marine Division. It just not was was not on our uniform. You know who came up with those division patches? Those core badges? None other than Hooker. None other than Hooker. I'm going to tell you something else. If you go to a military parade and they have a flag, U.S. Marine Corps, whatever, you're going to see these streamers. In the Civil War, those were battle honors that were put onto the flags. You can look up Civil War battle flags on the Internet and podcasts. You can see them. Chancellorsville, Manassas, Gettysburg, Stones River. Those are battle honors. Those came about because of General McClellan. Before the Civil War, he'd been in Europe, and he saw the European armies did that, and so he introduced it. And now... We have them as streamers. Now, since I mentioned Hooker, I'm going to have to mention one other thing, too, about the Battle of Chancellorsville. When I was doing Chancellorsville, and I thought about it just like I've told you two times, and I did do it, and I'm going to do it now. And you that had me in class, and I handed out a lecture guide. I love those lecture guides. And on those lecture guides were little hints. And on one of them, and if you were in my class fairly recently, this may ring a bell. 
Crane's badge. I'm going to say that again. Crane's badge. C-R-A-I-N. Badge. Unless you were in class, you had no idea what Crane's badge was. I bet you. Bet you, bet you, bet you. Stephen Crane. The Red Badge of Courage. The Red Badge of Courage podcasters was the most famous book written about the Battle of Chancellorsville. And the word Chancellorsville was never in the book. I'm going to say that again. That's the most famous book about the Battle of Chancellorsville, and yet the Battle of Chancellorsville does not appear in that book. So how do you know? You know about Chancellorsville, and you read that book. That's Chancellorsville. Now what's that got to do with Crane's badge? Red badge of courage, red badge of courage. All right, podcasters, I want you to look at Valerie's line, and I want you to determine I want you to determine, do you need to mark something down? Because I'm going to tell you something, and you're going to only hear it here. I'm going to say that again. Get Valerie's line, look at it, you can only hear it here. And before I tell you what you can only hear here, I'm going to tell you that I have shared this information with several people who are into history, and every one of them looked at me and said, I love these words. I believe you're correct. I think you're right. So let's do this. If you think I'm wrong, prove it. Somehow you get a hold of me and you let me know if you got a better, better answer than this. The red badge of courage. How many of you read The Red Badge of Courage? I used to ask that among my students, and only a few hands went up. Then I would ask, how many of you enjoyed the book? No hands went up. So then I asked them, did you have to read it for punishment? People's reading taste changed over the years. That was a bestseller. Normally, you read it in advanced English classes. I'm going to give you an overview if you've not read it. Henry Fleming was reading about how glorious war was. Harper's Weekly, Leslie's Illustrated, and all he wanted to be in on that glory. His mama didn't want him to go, but he went anyway. And in the first battle he was in, he'd never seen anything like that. Instead of being a hero, he ran. And in the back, and all the confusion of the wagons and, and the artillery coming up, and the, a soldier hit him on the head with a musket and knocked him out. When he came to, he finally went back to where his unit was, went back to his company. It was night. They saw his bloody head, and they assumed that, well, they, Johnny got you. You've been wounded. Yeah, yeah, he just went with Yes, I was. I was over on the other side where the real fighting was. And after getting hit on the head and that blood, that red podcaster, the next day he became a hero. He grabbed that flag and he led him to victory. 
I love doing this, podcasters. They made two movies about that. The first one, the black and white one, The Red Badge of Courage, starred Audie Murphy. I'm going to say that again, Audie Murphy. Now, podcasters, I've told you, I've been into history a long time. I saw The Red Badge of Courage when it was still in the theaters. And I knew Audie Murphy was the most decorated soldier in World War II, and he was a Texan, Medal of Honor, Distinguished Service Cross. You look up the medals Audie Murphy had, and I thought sitting there eating my popcorn in the Strand Theater, how in the world could this hero play a coward running in battle? I've read two biographies on Audie Murphy, and I found out He wanted that role so bad, that was his role, that was his chance to try to prove that he was actually an actor. And he was not a good one, and Audie Murphy knew he wasn't a good one. He said he suffered from only one one problem as an actor. He had no talent at all. But podcasters, when you look at that movie, and I'm, you're going to see Audie Murphy. He looked like a little boy. You're going to see somebody else in there, too. You're going to see Bill Malden. Bill Malden got the Pulitzer Prize for drawing cartoons of Willie and Joe in World War II. Now, because I have no idea when I'm going to get to World War II, I'm going to tell you about Willie and Joe. I'm going to tell you something. If you listen to Memorial Day podcast, I think I mentioned it in there. I saw those cartoons of Willie and Joe. They were ragged, they were dirty, and I have heard that General Patton hated Bill Martin for making those soldiers look. I'm going to tell you something, podcasters. He drew those soldiers for those soldiers who were muddy. The infantry, the ones doing the fighting. They're the ones that saw the humor. Oh, I laughed at it. I laughed at them. Because you're supposed to laugh at them. But once I got in the Marine Corps, Once I was in combat, then I saw the secret of Bill Malden. And he is also in the movie, The Red Badge and Courage. Now, if you have to see it in color, they did it, and they did it again, and this is going to date me. The TV show, The Waltons, John Boy, John Boy plays Henry Fleming in that one. All that. Now, here's what I'm getting to. Here's where my friends, who I informed them of what I'm going to tell you now, said, I believe you're right. The Red Badge of Courage book is the reason we have the medal for being wounded, the Purple Heart. The Purple Heart does not come into being until after World War I. In fact, the medals, Silver Star, Navy Cross, those are all post-World War I medals retroactive back to World War I. Now, one day, years ago, I was watching Do You Want to Be a Millionaire? Because I would like to be a millionaire. And the question, $250,000 question was this. What three words are on the reverse of a Purple Heart medal? The contestant didn't know, so he called a friend. The friend didn't know either. You know who knew? Me. All right, pay attention to Valerie's line.
and when he guessed he missed it, when they showed the correct answer, even Meredith was shocked, and I knew. And I was so easy in class, I told my students, this would be a question. That was to reward the ones that were there. I guarantee you, I can easily make up three words that are not on the back of a Purple Heart medal. And those three words are, for military merit. Now let's just keep going with this. Why is the Purple Heart for wounds purple when blood associated with being wounded is red? Red badge of courage. Why is it a heart? Why is the profiled image of George Washington, who never got wounded, although he was shot at and missed so many times, I don't think you could count them. Bill knows. I'm going to tell you all that. The Purple Heart was first awarded by George Washington during the American Revolution, but not for being wounded. For what? Military merit. It was purple cloth shaped like a heart that you sewed on the uniform sleeve. Only a few people got it. I don't know. That's all I know. Here's something else. Years ago, I have to date it, years ago, there was only one place in the world the Purple Heart Medal was made, and that was Tomball, Texas. Tomball, Texas. There were about 17 different steps to put that Purple Heart together. And I saw the gentleman interviewed that owned that little shop, and he said, it's probably the only business where you didn't want good business. The Purple Heart has to have come from the Red Badge of Courage. So what color was Crane's badge? Red. Chancellorsville. Core badges. Grant has not yet met Bobby Lee, but he's going to. That's why they were dancing. General Grant. Sunshine on a stormy day. We will continue with 1864 in the next podcast. Do the homework.